ready to roll? Let's roll. We are continuing our studies in Sechet Sanhedrin. Page 92, we're on the bottom of side B, the very bottom of side B. I'm going to turn the page very quickly, and then we're going to move on to the next page. This is going to be a, <laughs> a real page turn, as they say. Tony, the way Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. So here we're going to be learning a lesson from the story of Hananiah, Mishorah, and Azariah. You may remember these are Judaism's three brave boys who were thrown into a fiery inferno, miraculously emerged, and brought about a global Kiddush Hashem sanctification of God's name. This was considered to be something that was quite extraordinary. So the Gemara is going to talk about a lesson we learned. We're going to talk about what Nebuchadnezzar saw at the time and how that in and of itself is instructive and really tells us a lot about the power of a, a Yid's Mesiris Nefesh. And then most of the Gemara is going to be really a postscript to what happened after they emerged from the fiery inferno. Now that you know what we're going to learn. Talk to me, the way Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. Rabbi Eliezer in the base Medrash of Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. It's not necessarily teaching from Rabbi Eliezer, but it was a teaching that came from the house of Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. This is what his disciples or acolytes had a, a, a teaching preserved like this, though it doesn't seem to be in his name. And this is going to be a fashion statement. A film fashion statement. <laughs> a spiritual fashion even at a time of profound and grave danger, a person should not exchange his rabbit. That is literally how it translates, but of course it doesn't exactly mean that. As you'll see, it really means his dignity. It refers to his dignity. So sometimes the rabbinate is a euphemism for dignity. A person shouldn't lose their dignity even when they're in a time when their very life is threatened. And often, when people are calm, cool, and collected, I think there's no mic plugged into the Facebook, which means nobody's hearing anything. Right here. So when a, when a person is calm, cool, and collected, they're able to maintain dignity easy, to maintain composure and dignity when you're threatened, or when you find yourself in a situation of grave danger, it becomes much more difficult to maintain composure, much more difficult to maintain your dignity. But the Gemara says that in the yeshiva of Rebbe Eliezer, they taught that even in a time of sarkana, a person shouldn't change from his dignity. And we're referring here to the, like I said, a fashion statement. It's about the clothing. It's about the clothing a person wears. It's about the way that the image a person assumes. It's about the, the way they project. How do we know this? Shanemar, because we have a verse that speaks to us about Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah being led into the fiery furnace. And they, of course, had no inkling that they were going to be miraculously saved. They fully expected to pay with their lives. And nonetheless, in the third chapter 
in verse 21, it says, Vedayin guvraye eilich. This is how the people went. This is how they walked. They walked, it says, Kifisu besarboleihin bepatsheihin ubecharboleisehin vegoimer. They went wearing their robes, and robes are not things that are worn, it would be the equivalent of a business suit, like a jacket, that was like a robe once upon a time, or maybe even an overcoat. And they went with these uh, royal clothes. They were bound, if you will, in cloaks, in pants, and robes, it's translated. And they went with these royal clothes. And that's how they were thrown into the fiery furnace. In other words, Hanani Mishal Vazarya right now were being thrown into the fire and expected to be burned to a crisp momentarily. And yet, when they walked into that situation, they did so with their heads held high, maintaining composure and ensuring that their dignity was intact. So why is that so important? Who cares how dignified you look when you get killed? In the end, you're dead. What difference does it make? I just want to say if anybody on Zoom has a question, all you got to do is raise your hand or, and, and then I'll uh, be happy to take those questions. So Rashi says, How do we know? How did Rabbi Eliezer know this? Through analysis of the scripture. Because these three brave boys, these young men, who had been inducted into some kind of service for Nebuchadnezzar, there was some part of the detail, the royal detail, and they had to dress a certain way. And when they were thrown into that fiery furnace, they didn't change anything. They didn't, they didn't give off an air of anxiety, of fear, of concern, maintain their composure. And in doing so, that doesn't give your enemy, doesn't gratify your enemy with seeing you denigrated, robbed of dignity. In fact, you cause your enemy to be shamed by virtue of your composure. So who are we talking about here? The enemies are Nebuchadnezzar, the enemies are the evil anti-Semites who wanted to murder the Jewish people because they refused to submit to their idols. When, when I learn this Gemara, I oftentimes think of the way so many very prominent rabbis walked to the death cars, to the cars that led them to the death camp, and the stories that I've heard, and some even pictures that I've seen of how extraordinary Yidden maintained their composure in the worst of times, in the most unbelievable of times. There's a picture that I have of my family of my great-grandfather, Zacharina Lovracha, sweeping the street in Vienna. They lived in Budapest, in Vienna. I think they were back and forth. And I'm pretty sure this is a picture from Vienna, although it may be a picture in Budapest. I have to go back and look and see what the, what the date is. And the Nazis, when they first came in, it could even be the, uh, the locals who were assuming not the Nazi authority. They forced the leadership of the Jewish community to become the street cleaners. And my Elta Zaidi, my great-grandfather, was the sheikhet, the official ritual slaughter of 
seven, a string of seven very prominent Hungarian communities. It was called the Shevakilis. And the largest of those towns was Matasdorf. And the Matasdorf Erov survived the war. The Matasdorf Parnas survived the war. The Matasdorf Sheichet survived the war. Very, very small amount of the Matasdorf community and those other Shtetlach survived the war. Almost all of them were mass murdered. Why did they survive? Because when, when the Nazis came in and things were getting very bad, they figured that they would take it out on the leadership. So in order to protect the leadership, they obtained visas for the leadership. And they said, go to a safe spot, run away to America, and when, when, when the storm is over, you'll come back. But in this way, it felt as long as the leadership would be protected, they, they felt that the Nazis were trying to demoralize the community. Nobody imagined what was coming their way to demoralize the community. So in order to demoralize the community, they would make an example of the leadership. And they did this. They did this. There's, there's this picture of a Nazi, or Nazi-like, pointing an, an automatic weapon at Maizedi, who was a, Elta Zedi was a young man, I don't even think he was 40 at the time. And he was a, was a very handsome person with piercing blue eyes. And he had a, a, a flowing blonde beard. And here he is dressed in his rabbinic raiment. He's a sheikhet. He's a respected member of, of the Matasdorf leadership. And he's sweeping the floor. He's sweeping the street with a broom. And near him is the, uh, another rav. And there's a president of the community, some other prominent individual. And they're being made to look like monkeys, to look like fools, to look like, like subhumans. And the people couldn't imagine they were going to end up in on, on death and in, in cars, the, the cattle cars, take them to a death camp. They, th they thought they would try to demoralize them by making examples out of the leadership. In the end, my, my great-grandfather was severely beaten and he had the welts all over when he came home. But, but it's very telling the way he stands. Even with a broom in the picture, there's a certain dignity that he exudes. He didn't drop his dignity. And this is, this is a personal, like a family picture that I, that, I, that I saw many times. But there are many, many pictures in the Holocaust era of these extraordinary, under the most awful of circumstances, nonetheless maintaining the dignity. Perhaps the most chilling of all is a terrible picture of the Rav, come to me in a moment, name of the town, a Polish town, where the Nazis murdered a large amount of Jews, I don't know if the, the, the street is littered with corpses, and the Rav, they, 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 the Rav asked to say Kaddish. That's a young man, he's got to be about 40 years old. His tefillin are split open, and, and he's shoeless, and nonetheless, you see, he's standing there, you could see his devotion, you could see his inner composure and dignity as he says Kaddish before he's murdered by these subhuman beasts. And uh, I know the name of the town because somebody in our show's mother actually was, was there during that whole story and told him about it. But this is, this is the kind of thing. This is the images that come to mind when I learned this Gemara. And we learned this from Hananiah Mishav Azariah who were being led into a fiery furnace to be murdered and they did not lose their raiments and they didn't lose their dignity and they maintained their composure. The Marsha has a very, very interesting way of explaining this. Rashi says, you show the anti-Semites. That's, that's, that's our victory. We maintain our dignity and, and you can't rob us of our humanity as much as they wish to. The Marshal says that if a person loses their composure, in the end, we as believing Jews attribute everything to Hashem. So it, it becomes as if we're angry at Hashem, we're angry at God. How could God allow this to happen? And, and that would be 
a statement which is less than faith-filled. And therefore, we cannot be in the Masha's words, Mis'abel umitsta'er al-gzeres Hashem. The decree was leveled at us from heaven, we don't know why, but we, are, don't, we don't mourn and we cannot wince in pain at what is coming our way, but instead, we accept the will of Hashem with joy, with love and joy, in a way that exudes dignity. Really amazing words. Amazing words. How do, how does, how does people, how do they muster the strength? I don't know. But this, is, this has been the story of our people. There's an amazing story that I shared many times with the people on my show about the Rav of Dokshitz, the Lubavitcher Rav of Dokshitz, which was in Lithuania. And when the Nazis came, before they had perfected their art of mass murder, many of the shtetlach that were wiped out, people were either crowded into the shul and the windows and doors nailed shut and then the shul was incinerated with the population, with the Jewish people inside. And the other situation was where sometimes they would be taken to a field, made to dig their own graves, and simply machine gun, mow down into these graves. So there are two stories that stand out, one that I've repeated many times. The Dakshat Tzarev was a very beautiful man. His name was Rebbe Shainin. And he had a tremendous, what's called Hadras Panim, very imposing looking, very penetrating eyes and a very, very handsome, noble looking face. So when the Nazis herded all of the Dakshitsa Jews into the, into the wood shul to incinerate it, they separated him. They were going to make a sport of him. And they said to him, oh, they would tear his beard out and, and mock him and so on and so forth, and then, then b- murder him brutally. And they said to him, do you have a, any wish, a last wish, before we incinerate your community and then have our sport with you and murder you? And he said, yes, I would like you to bring me a Sefer Torah. The Nazi thought that was very funny. And so the yet-to-be-ignited shul was opened, and they went inside and brought out a sefer and they gave it to the Bleib Shenin. And then they nailed the door of the shul, nailed it shut. And as the story goes, the flames began. They began, they started to burn the shul with the people inside. And the Bleib Shenin was given the sefer and he began to sing the nigan of Simchas Torah. It's like mind-boggling mind the presence of mind the composure the holiness it's mind-boggling he want, he he died and this is how he was murdered he was riddled with bullets he was he was murdered holding a sefer torah not screaming crying moaning wailing singing a joyous song of hakafes of simchas torah this is how he was makabal on himself he accepted upon himself the gzeda the decree from hashem and this is the dignity and the composure he maintained until he drew his last breath. And this is uh, a short 80 years ago. We're not talking about antiquity. A short 80 years ago, this is a, a picture of what a Yid, a Chassid, a Yid, a Maimon was all about. The Bachonim Vasaman in the Lithuanian town of Baranovich, the famed Rosh Hashiva, who was herded into his yeshiva together with all of his disciples. And shutters nailed shut, the door nailed shut, and they realized exactly what was about to happen. That Abu Hanan ascended the bima for the last time in his life. And he gave a sermon, he gave a drasha to his students. And he said to him that we don't understand the ways of Hashem, we don't understand why this is happening to us. But he said, it's like a korban, it's like, like an offering. We don't, we don't understand it. But he said that when it comes to an offering, 
if you have machshav azoras, if you have the wrong thoughts, it's called pigul. So the, the korban, the, the offering is rendered unfit. He said, let us not die with anger against Hashem in our hearts. Let us not die with questions. Let us die with love. Let us die with devotion. Let us die with dedication. Let us die with a, a, a deep sense of connection to Hashem. And that's, that's the presence of mind that we're talking about here in the Gemara. And the Gemara says, even you don't change your raiments. Your raiments, of course, refer also to your external reality, as Rashi said, how they will see you. But as Masha said, the raiments here refer also to what is called in Hasidus, the garments of the soul, the royal garments of the soul, that should not be changed. Now the Yad Ramah has an interesting comment on this, which is a little different than everything we talk about, it, not so spiritual or uplifting. <laughs> he has a question, he says, he says, Jewish people are not supposed to wear that kind of clothes. We're not supposed to wear clothes which is uh, excessively luxurious and, and royal looking. Why, why would Hanani, Meshav, and Uzziah, righteous people dress like that? So he says they didn't wear these clothes because of who they were as, as Jewish people. They wore these clothes to the part of Nebuchadnezzar's detail. They'd been inducted into these ranks that, that were around the royal palace and, 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 it, and, its, and its compound. So, so that's why this had become the clothing that they were, in a sense, forced to wear. And because that was the image or the dignity that they had, not that they went for this wardrobe, because that was the wardrobe they wore in good times. So the point being made, says Yad Ramah, is they didn't change their wardrobe. They didn't, they didn't like say, you know what, who needs this? Like and throw it off and, and just lose the dignity. Whatever dignity they had maintained, whatever composure they had been able to exude up until this moment of danger, that's the way they continue to be. Although the Me'iri has a very sharp disagreement with the Yad Ramah about this, and he says, Rabbonus, yes, refers to dignity, not rabbinate per se. It refers to what we would call in modern English, presidential. So, so a rav was seen as somebody who has to act presidential, we would call it in English. It's to act dignified. It's to act like his position, reflect his position. And in a certain sense, rabbinus means to be presidential. It means, it, it means like the idea of a, of a rav doesn't just mean a teacher of Torah, really, really, really uh, uh, like, like a, a, a master of any sort, the leader of any sort. The person who's in charge would also have that kind of terminology applied to him. And so the Me'iri says, we know that a person is not supposed to wear excessively luxurious clothes, but we also know that a person is supposed to be dignified according to one station. Obviously, there's different uh, realities or, or, or different, different circumstances in which people dress in different ways. But regardless of the clothes that you wear, they have to be worn with a sense of dignity. So, you know, in the old country, most Hasidim did not wear fedoras. They wore uh, a cap, a casket. You know, the two, two elder Hasidim who came from Russia and the Rebbe told them that they should, they bought fedoras. Everybody else is wearing a fedora. They bought a, it's called in Yiddish, a shlape. And the Rebbe said to the Berkechein, where's your hat? Where's your dashik? It's called in Yiddish. Where's your dashik? <laughs> and the story goes, it's by Fabrengen. His son, Allah Shalom ran off to go get his old dasha because he had just brought him before Yom Tov, before Shabbos. He brought him a, a new hat. He brought him a dasha and say, where is... And I think, I think the Rebbe wanted us to have the privilege of seeing the image of, 
what a chassid used to look like. Not just see it in picture books, not just hear stories about it, but actually to see it. And these two chassidim, Reber Kechein and Mendel Futafas, may the memories be a blessing, they had this incredible influence. First of all, who they were, they were so pious and, and, and so incredibly focused and so, so vibrant and in the, in the, in passionate in their chassidus, in their, in their, in their Yiddishkeit. But also there was a picture. It's a picture, you know, like we, we grew up, we were as young boys and we lived with not hearing about it, but seeing the Hasidim of yesterday walking the streets with us today. So it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a gray hat, a black hat. There's nothing particularly religious about the hat I wear. It's a, it's a Borsellino. It's whatever. It's just a nice hat that happens to be made in Italy. <laughs> That's why do I wear it? Because it's the nicest of the hats. If I'm wearing a hat, I want to wear a decent looking hat. Five years ago, everybody was wearing very large brims. Now the brims are getting smaller. That's not the point. That's not the point. Lubavitch Hasidim never made a religion about the clothing you wear. It's not Jewish or holy. or, a, or you're, not, you're not a Hasid because you wear this hat or that hat. You, you, can, you can dress up an orangutan in a hat. It doesn't make him into a, into a Hasid. But the point, what? the point was to have a certain image and to maintain a certain composure, to maintain a certain image, that's what we're talking about over here. So the Me'iri says, whatever image they maintained, that's what they continue to maintain. Rabinus doesn't mean necessarily royal clothes. It happened for Hanani Mishav Azar to be royal clothes because that's what they were part of. But that's not the point. The point is not royal clothes. The point is we should be royal. We should be royal. We should be, we should be dignified. We are Yidin. And Yidin are B'nai Malachim. Hashem gives us a certain nobility and we should carry ourselves in a noble way. We're not, as they say, street people. We're not urchins. There's a, there's a certain dignity that a, that, a, that a Yid who comports himself in the spirit of Torah is going is gonna to ex- exude, he's going to have a sense, a sense of dignity. And the point of the Gemara is that that sense of dignity, the way you present yourself, should not change even in a time of Sarkana or where Rahman al-Tzan, heaven forfend, the a situation of Kiddush Hashem, of sanctification of God's name, heaven forfend, comes our way. Okay, so we open with a fashion statement. You have a question? No? Okay. So we open with a fashion statement, and moving on from the fashion statement now, we move on to a teaching of Rabbi Yechanan, which is, it's not really about Hanani Mishov Azariah per se, but the lesson is drawn from the situation of these three brave boys thrown into the inferno. Omar So the Gemara now is going to share with us another drasha, another exposition on Rabbi Yechanan. And the exposition goes like this. Gidoilim tzadikim yoiser memalachi ashores. We're now on page 93, we've turned the page. Tzadikim the righteous, are greater than ministering angels. Now, on a literal level, the Gemara is talking about people who were actually tzaddikim. Hananiah, Mishov, Azariah are holy, very holy, very pious people. Very perfect people. And if there were any imperfections up until this point, when you're called upon to, to worship an idol publicly, and the prophet himself tells you, as we learned last week in our previous lesson, that it's not going to save you to stand by your principles. Hashem is not going to be there necessarily to bail you out. And you are ready to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Oy tzaddik, as they say. That is definitely a tzaddik without any question. So these people were tzaddikim. 
And the Gemara's statement, the Gemara's exposition is that Gedolim Tzadikim, that Tzadikim are greater. More so than the ministering heavenly angels. Why is that? Shanemar, because in the book of Daniel that describes this very narrative, in the third chapter, verse 25, it says, that after Hananiah, Mishal, Azariah were thrown into the fiery, fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar came to take a look. Anevi Omar, Nebuchadnezzar speaks up and he says to his advisors, What in the heavens is going on here? Ha'ano Chazei Guvrin, I can see Arba, I see four people here. I see four people that are in, so to speak, spending time in and moving about in the fire. What's going on over here, he says. And then he goes on to say, But I don't see any kind of chavola. I don't see any kind of, of, of damage. They don't seem at all damaged. What's going on over here, he says. People in a fire, and they seem perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. I don't understand this. So the Gemara now analyzes the words that he uses. He uses the words, he says, He says the fourth of them, Dome Levar Elohon. He seems, Levar Elohim, he seems to be a son of God. Son of God is a euphemism for an angel. The fourth is an angel. I see three people unscathed, and the fourth is an angel. The fourth is an angel. So Rashi says, How do we know? How does this teach us that Tzadikim are greater than ministering angels? The Beresha Choshiv Litlasa Tzadiki. First, he enumerates the three righteous Jewish men, Hananiah, Mishal, Azariah. But the Malach is the one who trails behind them. Because it says, He says, the fourth one seems to be the one who's a, so to speak, a, a son of God, meaning an angel. It's the fourth one. As the Gemara in Psachim tells us, which is the same Gemara appears in the Gemara in Psachim on page 118, it says the point was here that he called the angel the fourth one. The fourth. In other words, he first enumerated the three tzaddikim. He says there's three people and an angel behind them. And from the fact that he first spoke of the people and then spoke of the angel behind them, this is indicative of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar saw something greater because he's right now seeing things, real things, powerful things, pious things, holy things, miraculous things. And he's seeing the three people first and only afterwards is he seeing the angel. In the Yalkut Shemaini it says, Ravei de Kadma, the faces of the first one it doesn't say. It says, Ravei Diriviyah. It says the faith, face of the fourth one. So this is Gavriel says the Alka Chumani, 
the angel Gabriel, Archangel Gabriel, as we discussed in last week's Gemara, and Gabriel HaMalach, was Mahalach Achareihem, says the Yalkut Shemoni, listen to this, he says, Ketalmid Achar Harav, like a, dis, a, a, a disciple, a pupil follows the teacher. Like a pupil following the teacher. So because he says like a pupil following the teacher, the, the upshot is that the Malach lagged behind. He came in second place with the first three, Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah, tied for first place. Now, on a very literal level, the Gemara's exposition refers to tzaddikim. However, however, my friends, really and truly, there's this notion that ve'amech kulum tzaddikim, that the word tzaddikim is also a euphemism for every single member of Am Yisrael. Everybody is considered to be righteous. Ve'amech kulum tzaddikim, you have a nefesh alikis, you have this special soul, it already earns you the title of righteousness. And we know that this is Netzer matoy maise yodav, as the prophet Isaiah says, this is my handiwork. My handiwork, God says. Not because of their efforts, but because it's my handiwork. And it's lehispoir. God is, glorifies himself with this. And we know that the deeper meaning of this is that kol Yisrael, as the Mishnah says, every single member of our Yisrael, yesh lechelek le'ilam He's born with a, purse, a piece of heaven, a piece of eternity. In other words, by dint of his very reality, by dint of who he is and how he was born, he already has the potential of great righteousness. Now, it's possible to lose that potential, but it's innate. It's inherent. So really what we're saying here is that tzaddikim, meaning neshamas Yisrael, are greater than malachim. Ah, the malachim are so holy, and the malachim are so aware of God, and we are not. And we are shackled with physicality and corporeality and materiality and all of the other phenomenon that comes along with that, whereas angels are divested of that. So the way Hasidus explains it is based on the verse that the, the human being, the neshama, is called v'nasati mahalchin. I gave a, amongst you a mover between those who stand frozen. So in this, in this notion, Ezekiel is describing the angels. And Ezekiel says... That the Novi Yecheskel says that there's a mahalach. Mahalach doesn't just mean to walk. It means to progress. It means to be able to move forward. Sometimes when you move forward, you surge forward. You're, you're progressing. You're growing. And that's not predictable. And it's not always exactly sustainable in the same fashion. And there are rises and rests. And there are high points and low ones. But the point is, we're making a difference. The angels are predictable. They're programmed. Like a computer. So everything is programmed that's going to be exactly so. But because the angel has no Yetzirah to contend with, because the angel has no foibles, has no weaknesses, he also therefore has no courage and no real strength. Because courage and strength come to the fore when great weakness seems to take hold of us. And then we overcome that weakness, and we overcome anxieties, and we overcome fears, and we exhibit courage and mettle and strength. And this is something that's uniquely human. And therefore, in one hand, we're very small. And as the Rambam, you, you, uh, paraphrasing our sages, says, we're, we're like little pueblos living in mud huts. And we live in, in amidst, amidst the slime and the filth of materialism and greed and anger and arrogance and competition and the drive of ambition that will sometimes cause people to step over others and harm them 
in, when they're blinded with this, this, this need for, for success or fame. We're living amongst all that. That's true. And we have our small-mindedness and we have our, 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 our pettiness. But, but, but tell me, no malach can give a sermon like Rabbi Hanan gave, as I'd mentioned. No malach can dance with a sefetera with like Rebbe Shainin did. No malach can be under duress of sakona to maintain their composure. And that, my friends, that is the most amazing thing. And so Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah, who could walk into a fiery furnace with their heads held high with a sense of quiet Jewish dignity and pride, that's something no malach can come close to. And therefore the malach lagged behind. But we must know that despite the fact that we have so many challenges and so many shortcomings, we are also endowed with the ability for extraordinary greatness. And the malachim are jealous of us. And the malachim look at us in awe and in amazement. The Rebbe Rashab once said, that the greatest archangel would give away all of his worlds just for the privilege of a child kissing a Sefer Torah. Unfortunately, during this present time, we're not able to kiss the Sefer Torah, but this is like a casual almost demonstration of love for Hashem, of love for His Torah. And that's something, and that's something, my friends, that a malach is jealous of. Allah has come of a kama, how much more so when a person overcomes his or her demons, you overcome your Yitzhahara, you overcome your lusts, your cravings, your desires for sensual libido or material gratification. And instead, you leave, you put all that aside and focus on the Rebbeinu Shalom, on the Creator, and on, on, our, on our spiritual mission, then this makes us far, far greater than the Malachim, than the angels. And this is all two, two lessons. One lesson from the Hanani Mishol of Azari going down, into, going down in, into the fire, and a lesson learned from Nebuchadnezzar, the monster's perception of how they were in the fire. And at this point, the Gemara begins the postscript narrative of Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah. So previously, the Gemara, the Gemara had talked about the pregame. In the pregame, so to speak, Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah are surrounded by people and everybody's bowing to the idols and they didn't know themselves what to do. And then, and then, um, the prophet said, you're not going to be saved. And they said, okay, so we won't be saved. We will nonetheless do what we believe is to be the right thing. So the Gemara now says, so when they came out of that fire, what was the post-mortem like? Of course, bad word to use because post-mortem <laughs> literally means after death. But there was no death here. This was a post-life, a postscript. What happened? Omer, Rabbi Tanchuma Bar Chaniloi. Rabbi Tanchuma, the son of Rabbi Chaniloi, said... When these three brave boys emerged from the fiery inferno, all the nations of the world came. They rallied around. They struck the faces of the enemies of Israel. Now this is a euphemism. When the Gemara talks to us about the enemies of Israel, it actually doesn't mean the enemies of Israel. It means the Jewish people. But because one does not wish to cast aspersion or to decry Am Yisrael, so we say the enemies of Israel. But really it doesn't mean the enemies, my friends. This is a euphemism. Like calling the blind person a sagi nohar, light struck. Although there is, that's somewhat literal because the iris opens too wide. But at any rate, we use sometimes what's called sarcasm. It's almost like a, sar a sarcastic expression, but also something that in which we seek to defend 
the dignity of Am Yisrael. So they struck the faces of Sineim Shal Yisrael, the hapless Jewish people. Alpaneim. Amru Lahem. They said to them, they said this, these very biting words. They said, Yesh Lahem You have such a God? This is, this is your God? And you prostrated yourselves? You worshipped an idol? You have such a God and that's who you abandoned? In other words, they were really buoyed and excited by these miracles they saw. So they came to the Jewish people and they said to him, What fools are you? What imbeciles? How did you do this? You have such a God. Look what just happened. And him you abandoned? It's a very shameful moment for the Jewish people. Miyad, immediately, Paschu. And there's different ways to read this. Some read this as Hananiah Meishov Azariah said, almost trying to defend the Jewish people or minimize their role. Many others read this as Miad Paschu. No, the Jewish people themselves who had sinned now immediately spoke up with tremendous regret and remorse. And they said, V'amru, Lacho Hashem Hatzdaka. To you, God, is righteousness. V'lanu Beishas upon him. And to us, and to us is shame and embarrassment as we feel on this day, meaning at this moment. Rashi says, Why did they strike them in the faces? Which also could be a euphemism. It's not necessarily indicative of any kind of violence, but it's a, it's a euphemism. It's like, it's like throw it in your face. You threw it in their faces. And they said to them, what'd you do? This, this is menschlich, this, this, is this is normal. What'd you do? You threw it in their face like that. So, so they said, that they, they threw it in their face. How'd you do this? So they said, having nothing else to say, he said, what, 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 what should we say? To you, Hashem, and this, and this uh, is this day in which Hanani Vishal Vazariah came out and emerged victorious, saved by Hashem. This is, this is the shame, the embarrassment that they felt at this moment. Now, the way the Marshal explains this, is that Kahayei Mazeh is not emphasizing this moment, but this great day. On this great day of Hananiah, Mishal, Vazaya's emergence, this is the shame and the embarrassment they felt. Now, you know, to be a big hero, come and attack the Jewish people afterwards, after Hashem makes a miracle. How many times Nebuchadnezzar thrown into fiery furnaces and lion's dens, and it didn't work out this way. You know, very easy for us to sit as a Monday night quarterbacks, armchair quarterbacks, and we talk about what they did do or didn't do. But in the end, what's asked of us is to make the ultimate sacrifices and to be absolutely committed and devoted and dedicated to Hashem, even though we're mocked and denigrated for it, and even though we're harmed for it, and even though sometimes, sadly, our ancestors had to pay the ultimate price. The Gemara now begins to introduce a similar kind of teaching. It's not directly linked, but it's, there's, it's, it's kind of linked, as you'll see. Amir Rabbi Shmuel ben Achmeni. Rabbi Shmuel ben Achmeni said, Amir Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan said, what is the meaning of the Pasuk? And the Pasuk that we're going to talk about now is a Pasuk which is found in the Song of Songs. We know that the Song of Songs is considered to be Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, so to speak. And it is the song in which Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, in his wisdom, 
in his wit, in his insight, and his prophetic poetry describes the love of Hashem and the Jewish people. But the protagonists in the story are, sound more like Romeo and Juliet, but that's all an, 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 a metaphor. It's all a parable. And in the Pasuk, it says like this. This is found in Shir Hashirim, verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. It says, Amarti e'le b'samar. I said I would be... Um, I would be elevated, exalted, Ela, through the to the palm tree. Oichaza besansinov. I would I would take hold of its branches, or like or like, but I would take hold of its branches. So this is the way to understand this. Amarti Ela Besamar. I said I would be exalted through the palm. What does this refer to? Elu Yisrael. This is the Jewish people who are metaphorized as a day tree. The Gemara Mesechah Sukkah tells us on page 45 when we speak about the Lulav, the Gemara tells us that there's something very special about the day tree that becomes the paradigm, if you will, for the Jewish people living righteously. As the famous Pasa goes, Tzadik Katomar Yifrach, the Tzadik will flourish like the day tree. It's not a secret that when Jewish people minted coins in their rebellion against Rome, the day tree showed up over there. And the lulav is a sign of victory, and the day tree is a sign of the eternity of the Jewish people. So he says, Ma Tomar this day tree ain't loyalev echad. It only has one heart, so to speak. That means that it's 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 a, a central shaft in the tree where there's actually, so to speak, the soft growth that only happens right in the middle of the tree where it's like soft and the sap is flowing. It has a single cavity. It's called like one, one center, one heart. So it says, Af Yisrael, the Gemara says, so to the Jewish people, ultimately, they have a heart, one heart towards Hashem. And of course, it's very interesting to note that without knowing this, many people will claim that despite that their lack of observance and lack of affiliation and lack of literacy and lack of interest, they say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jew at heart. I'm still a Jew at heart. And they're not wrong. <laughs> they are a Jew at heart. And that's actually meaningful. Not meaningful enough, but it's meaningful. It says something. Of course, our, our mission, our purpose, our job is to take what's in the heart and to bring it forth. So it doesn't, love doesn't remain in the heart, but the love actually permeates the way we behave. And the point then is this. The point is that the lulav, which comes from the palm tree, I say just say is also, the name lulav stands loy lev. To him is our heart. And so the Gemara says like this, I'm exalted, I'm ela, I'm raised up through the Tamar Elu Yisro. However, ba'akshav, but today, not to the Jewish people. Le'ole bi'adi ala san san echad. I only got one branch. And this is the branch of Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah. In other words, we the Jewish people failed. We failed our test miserably. And there was our only saving grace. Our only redeeming spirit was Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah. And interesting, in the Pasuk it says Sansinov, which is plural. 
And even though the Gemara says San San Echad, there really is San Sinov because, because there are three people. So there are multiple of branches. The Gemara now continues to talk about the postscript of this incredible international story. Rashi says, before we go further, Ani Amarti, Shakola Tomar Shali. The whole day tree is mine. There should have been many righteous people of a good heart, hearts in the right place. But I didn't get in my hand, I couldn't get my hands on those branches, only those branches. Yisrael nimshal the summer, Yisrael is like the summer, as I mentioned to you, the Gemara in Sukkah, on page 45, that the Tomer has but one heart. The Gemara now tells us something very interesting. Very, very interesting. A drasha, a continued drasha on the postscript of, of this event and the results, the reverberations, repercussions, if you will, of what happened. Omer Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan says, What is the meaning of what's written in the beginning of the prophecies of Zechariah? Ra'isi halayla. I saw the night, the darkness. There is a man riding. This is a prophetic vision. A man is riding on a red horse. And he's standing amongst the myrtles. Standing amongst the myrtles. Which are in the pool. The muddle, the puddle. So the Gemara now begins to analyze this verse. What is going on here? What is the meaning of this prophecy? Rashi tells us, This is in the prophecies of Zechariah. And the Gemara says, What's going on here? What is the meaning of I saw the night? He says, means, God sought to bring the whole world into a state of night. That's not a good thing. Rashi says, Why would the night fall? Why would darkness fall upon the entire world? Darkness would fall upon the entire world. Because they bowed to this idol. When the Jewish people turned their back on Hashem and bowed to the idol, Hashem said, then in that case, then in that case the world is no longer deserving of my beneficence and no longer will they have my blessing and my light. And the world will turn to night. And one can only shudder to think of what that means. But behold, behold, as God was planning, prepared to bring night upon the world. Ishreichev, a man is riding. Who is a man is riding? Says the Gemara, Ein Ish, El HaKadosh Baruch There is no man. Man is a euphemism. It's an anthropomorphism. It refers to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the Holy One, blessed be He. And we know this because it says, Hashem Ish Melchama, Hashem Shemoy. God is the man of war. God is His name, as our sages and rabbis tell us. He doesn't do battle with weaponry, with ammunition. Hashem Shemoy, He, so to speak, fights with His name, so to speak. So Hashem is... Asus Odim on a red horse. And a red horse, and a red horse 
The red horse is a sign of something which is not positive. It's not positive. Red is a sign of sin, a color of sin. And it's not a good situation. As the Gemara says, what does it mean? Asus Edaim. That God wished to turn the world into a place of blood, a place of bloodshed, a place of unbridled violence. And the Gemara says, When God saw the incredible sacrifice, the love, the loyalty, the commitment, the dedication and devotion of Hananiah, Mishal, Vazaria, the willingness these three young men to pay with their very lives, or even though the prophet told them, do not expect any saving grace. Don't expect any miracles. This, proverbially speaking, cooled the temperature. It, so to speak, enabled God to relax from his anger. Shenemar, as it says, He stood amongst the myrtles in the puddle, in the pool. Rashi says, God, so to speak, set himself up in the merit of these myrtles in the pool. And how do we know who, who this is and what this means? What is the euphemism of hadasim of myrtles? And what is the pool? Says the Gemara Vein Hadasim Elat Sadikim. Myrtles, hadasim, are a euphemism, it's a code. A code, an image for tzaddikim. Shenemar vayhi oimein es hadasa, and he was raising hadasa. This, of course, refers to Esther being raised in the house of Mordechai, and according to the opinion that her real name was Esther, and that hadasa is her nom de gur. So Esther was. There is another opinion that her name actually was hadasa, and Esther is the nom de gur. But according to the opinion that this this Gemara follows the opinion that her real name was Esther, she was called Hadassah by, vir- by, 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 by virtue of her righteousness, as a euphemism to describe her righteousness. So a myrtle is something that describes righteousness. And what's Metzula? What is the puddle? What is the pool? The pool is Bavel. Shanemar, as it says in a verse of the prophecies of Yeshayo Hanavi, who speaks about the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, he said that God would indeed fulfill His word. He will say to the tzula, missing the mem, but the same word still, the pool, you should be destroyed. And to its rivers, that they should be dried up and nothing good will be left there. And so the hadasim, the, the myrtles, are the tzadikim. Asher bim tzula, who are in, who are in the, the bavel, the Babylon quagmire, the Babylon swamp, spiritual swamp, the pool of Bavel. Who was there? Hanani, Mishal, Vazariah. So what happened? Miyad, Meleim, Reges, Nasim, Srukim, Vadumim. So the Gemara says that immediately these horses who are symbolic of anger, these, these red horses symbolic of anger, became colored and then the ones who were va'adumim nasilavanim so the ones filled with anger became colored which i suppose is 
indicative of joy, you know, different joyous or happy colors. And the red ones turned white. Rashi says, Sirukim Tsuvuyim. They were, they were colored. They turned colors. And then everything became white. As Hashem looked at the tzaddikim, So from red it turned colors, and then it turned white. The Gemara says, Papa. The Papa says, From here we can see, you can derive, That having a white horse in a dream, it's a good sign. It's a good thing. What's the connection from a dream? How do we get from a dream <laughs> To a prophecy to a dream. So the Gemara says, It's pretty clear that the red horse, the color red and the red horse, was something that alluded to a, a curse. So therefore, the white is something that represented the concept of purity, of clarity, and goodness. Now, the thing is this as uh, it says in the Gemara, that a cholam, that a dream, is echod mishishim is one sixtieth of prophecy. Now, a 60th is the amount that's overwhelmed. Like you have a drop of milk full into a stew of meat. It's not going to become milk and meat because it's over, overwhelmed 60 times, which entirely nullifies it. So it doesn't really exist. So whenever we have this expression of a 60th, it's like you visit a sick person, you take a 60th of their illness away. We're talking about something which is not negligible. Beneath the number 160th is a non-negligible. It's a non-negligible form of prophecy. It's not a, don't take it seriously. But something there is something to it. That's what the Marshal says. That's why there's a link that's drawn. It's still Echad Mishishim. It's still 160th. It's something. Something. It's not a prophecy, but something. And the Gemara in Brachas on page 56b, which actually talks about dreams and various images that a person might see in a dream, talks about, says that somebody who sees a white, a white horse in a dream, that's a good sign. Whether it's galloping at speed or trotting at a very, very modest, a moderate pace. And then it says, if you see a red horse that's moderate, that's relaxed, you're okay. But if you see a red horse that's galloping at great speed, that's a sign of fury and anger, and that's a bad sign. And therefore, the Marsha comes to the conclusion that the red horses in this prophecy of Zechariah must have been galloping, based on the Gemara and Brachas, he comes to the conclusion they must have been galloping at great speed. The Gemara now discusses the final postscript of the story. And these dignitaries, following the euphemism that we said Abinus is not about rabbis, but dignitaries, these people who became so glorious, so celebrated, these celebrated heroes, what happened to them? Where'd they go? Why is the Gemara asking this question, where'd they go? I'll tell you why. Because they filled the beginning of the book with the, their, their splendor, and then they simply fade away. We never hear another word about Hanani Mishal Vazaya. These three brave men, these three boys, who brought about such repute to the Jewish people, who created, who were the vehicle that Hashem used to make such a Kiddush Hashem, such a tremendous sanctification of God's name, you would think they would be promoted to some leadership position. They should have been heard of for decades. They just fell off the radar. Hananiah, Mishov, Azariah are never mentioned again, ever, ever. What happened? They were rising stars. This is the future of the Jewish people. Nothing, nothing, not one word, not one mention. Maybe a mention, but we'll soon see. That's not even so simple. So the Gemara wants to know what happened. 
So the Gemara says, Amar Rav. Rav says, and in general, this is Rav's approach. Rav believed that Ayin Hara, that the evil eye is a very dangerous thing. Rav was of the opinion that Ayin Hara, he says, is uh, something that many people die from. In fact, Rav says 99% of people die in the end from the Ayin Hara. So he says people can't stand, can't stand it. And that's why the Yad Ramah says, you see, Rav follows his shita. He says, you know what happened to them? They were so famous. They were so profoundly well-known and so their profile was so high. There was just an enormous amount of jealousy. And, and people gave them an eye in the heart. And with this evil eye, he says, they ended up dying. Nesu. After Tyson, very interesting. A personal little story. My uncle Label Allah Shalom is a, a very, very extraordinary person. My father's younger brother. He's extraordinary, a brilliant, brilliant person. And he was like a was a star in every way. He's a genius, an absolute a Torah genius. And because he was such an extraordinary scholar and such a, a such an incredible disciple and so devoted to the Rebbe, and he was chosen to be on, sent on the first group of Shluchim when in Australia. So my grandfather, Allah Shalom, he wanted the Rebbe to be Misadi Kedushin. The Rebbe had stopped officiating at weddings in the early 60s, and now we're back to 1971. He wanted the Rebbe to be Misadi Kedushin in 1970. So I think it was almost 10 years. So the Rebbe said to my Zaydah, what do you need it for? In other words, there'll be Ayin Hara. There was, my uncle had been, been in a car accident before, he almost died. So my grandfather want, you know, felt that he should get something special. And the Rebbe said to my Zaydah, what do you need it for? People will look and Ayin Hara. What do you need it for? So sometimes you don't have to be, you know what they say, stick it in everybody's face. Don't let this. It, sometimes it's a good idea to be a little more modest. Fly beneath the radar a little. You don't have to look for that, that exposure. And many, many times when people literally explode onto the world stage, they fade away and you never hear from them again. And a lot of times it harms them. So, so this excessive fame that, that happened overnight, it was overnight fame, overnight growth. It wasn't, there, was no, there was no trajectory of diligence and of, 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 of hard work, rises and rests, falls, fa foibles, failures. No, it was like straight to the top. And in the end, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't good for them. Now, it doesn't have to mean, by the way, literally they physically died. It could also mean it was a... So euphemistically, they, they faded away. They faded away like many child stars. Child stars who become troubled adults. And they fade away. Shmuel Amar. Shmuel is always Rav's protagonist. Other leader of the academy in Bavel, he says, Bereik Tavu. They drown in spittle. What does it mean, Bereik Tavu? It sounds crazy. What does it mean? So Rashi says, All the people, the nations of the world came and spat at the Jewish people. And they said, You have such a God. And, and you bow to an idol. So they all spat. And the spat of so many people overwhelmed them. Now, this is obviously very hard to understand. By the way, the Ayin Hara Rashi says, how you everybody was looking at them. They were like in astonishment. And Rashi also says, where they go, when they emerge from the inferno, where they go next? What was the postscript? There's not one mention in the whole scripture. The Marsha it's a very beautiful way of explaining this drowning and spittle business. He says, 
that through Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the Jewish people were greatly shamed. And this notion of them greatly, of being greatly shamed is something that in the end, it wasn't good for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It gave them great heartache. They weren't Jewish heroes per se. They became the unwitting and unwilling instruments of the enemies of the Jewish people. And as such, they, they died of broken hearts. They, they faded away. The Ben Yehiyada insists that they literally died, says the Ben Eshchai. And he says that they became a kapara. They became an atonement for the generation, much like the ten martyrs, the greatest sages who were killed. And this is another whole subject, which is not really the primary thrust there, so I'm not going to dwell on it and I'm not going to focus on that. And this is, the Gemara now says something very interesting, that Rabbi Yechanan Amar, Rabbi Yechanan says, there's a third opinion here, Olu Laretz Yisrael, they moved to Israel, they left Bava, they got married, and they had families, they had families. They faded off the international stage. In other words, they didn't want they didn't want to seek out any fame. They had enough fame. And they had enough. They didn't want the fame. They wanted to just live normal lives. And therefore, they're not mentioned anymore. They ran away from Babel. They felt inappropriate. They felt it was too, too taxing, too intense. They just wanted to become the quiet, ordinary, you know, like citizen. Anonymous, anonymous citizen X. They didn't want to be known. They, didn't, they couldn't handle it. It was too intense for them. I saw once... So once there was, a, years ago, we had an Israeli war hero here. He's here with his wife. And I could see there was a, it was difficult. They were, they were in pain. All the fame was not bringing them joy. On the contrary, they just wanted to be regular people again. And they, and they, and they kind of couldn't. They had been thrust onto the stage. And, and they had a responsibility. They felt the responsibility. And they, they, were do, they were doing their due diligence, but it was not with joy. And for many, many people who think that fame is what fortune is all about, you speak to famous people, you find out that fame is not so, it's not so fantastic. And oftentimes, fame actually destroys the life of its object. And so they didn't want, they ran away from that. The, and, and because they ran away, had they run away, they ran back to Israel, ran to Israel. And how do we know this? So here we're going to see there is actually a little mention. Rabbi Eliezer, Amir Rabbi Eliezer says that you should know this is Ketanoi. This whole business that we find the Amoraim, the rabbis of the Gemara arguing about, was actually argued about in the generation before. We find the same argument with regard or amongst the, the uh, Tanoim, the rabbis of the Talmud. And the rabbis of the Talmud said, there was one opinion that they died by. Ayin says, Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Yeshua said, he says they drown in the spittle. And the Chachamim the sages said, and here is the difference between the previous argument. This argument, the earlier version, actually contains an allusion to this. It says, Shemana Yoshua HaKoyen Gadol. Listen, hearken, Yoshua the Koyen Gadol. Now Yeshua Koyen Gadol, it says, Ata you, Vereacha HaYosh Velefanecha. And those, your peers who sit with you, Ki Anshei Moifes Heima, because they are miracle men. And the Gemara says, Eze Heima Anoshim Shenasu Lahem Moifes who are people that everybody knows by virtue, not of their careers, not of their Torah teachings, but by virtue of a miracle that happened through them. Who are those? Names that are very widely known, but really known only for one event. They were one event people. They're associated with one event and one event only. 
Now, Yehoshua was not yet a Kohen Gadol, clearly, because they went back there to Israel, and God's speaking, why is he called a Kohen Gadol? So the, the Mepharshim explained that, that Yehoshua, Kohen Gadol's father, was Yehid Tzadok. And we know there's a halacha, that when a person dies, ideally, that they leave a son who's worthy, that he's supposed to inherit that position. So he was by default already, he was going to be the Kohen Gadol, and therefore by default he's like called Kohen Gadol, even though the Beis Amigdash had not yet been rebuilt. And, truth be told, Yoshua was the first Kohen Gadol of the second Beis Amigdash, so he was called a Kohen Gadol, and eventually that was a mantle of leadership that he claimed. And that's the end of the story of Hananiah, Mishal, Vazaria. Join me again for the next episode in which we're going to be looking at Daniel. Where was he in the midst of all this to be continued?